Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. You want to meet your teacher in the back? I know in Sunday school they were talking about Joseph this morning, so they're kind of right in there with us as we're working through Genesis. And uh, let me open us with, uh, with uh, prayer. Uh, Lord, we do uh, praise you for your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us, for drawing near to us, for leading us to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would honor you in all that we do, that we would be a people who are sensitive to you, who listen to you and don't grieve you. Uh, Lord, give, grant us mercy in that. And uh, Lord, we pray this morning for our nation as uh, there's been a shooting another shooting in another school. Lord, we, uh, we beg for mercy. Uh, Father, we uh, pray for the victims, uh, families who have to deal now with the loss of children. What a horrible thing for a parent to face. Um, Lord, we pray for um, the heroes who, who stood in the way during this, this tragic shooting. For uh, I heard of one young man who held a door for everybody else a teacher who threw himself between the shooter and his students. Lord, thank you for the heroism, the bravery of these folks. And Lord, we pray that, um, that their sacrifice would not um, be meaningless, that they would be remembered for what they've done. Lord, we pray for the, the survivors of the shooting. Uh, Father, this is a traumatic event that will be haunting them for years. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with good counselors wise people who can help them process what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And Lord, we pray for um, our lawmakers, for our leaders to figure out how it is that we can address this horrible problem. Lord, what can we do to stem um, the shooting that happens in this nation? Lord, ultimately, I believe the problem is we don't have you. We've largely ignored you. We don't have an appreciation for what human life is. We don't treasure it because we don't see humans in the image of God. And therefore, we have all sorts of messed up things happening in, in our culture. Lord, help us to recover the gospel so that we will see that we are all children of God made in his image. And Lord, we would be, treat people in, in that respect. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Father, I want to pray for Ron LaFoon's brother who's fallen and, and uh, cracked his skull. He's got a fracture. Um, Father, I pray that the attending doctors would have wisdom and care and um, be attentive. I know sometimes they get very busy and it's easy to, to miss things. Lord, help them to see and to pay attention and to care for him. And uh, Father, we pray for the Muma family who um, moved to, to Arizona, but uh, Lord, they're still very much with us. Uh, Lord, with uh, Shirley's passing, uh, Father, we pray that, that she is now in your arms, that she has heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that she has put her faith and her trust in you. And uh, Lord, we pray for Ron and Piper and the, the rest of the family as they deal with Shirley's passing. Lord, would you grant them comfort and care? And for us as well, because they were part of our family. Help us to trust you with, uh, with life and with death. And Lord, now as we turn and we begin to look at... Uh, the continuing story of Joseph in Genesis. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to us, that you would make it clear to us, that we would see and, and find hope. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, we're continuing Joseph's story. And 
chapter, I'm going to do all of chapter 43 today on your bulletin. It was only the first 14 verses, and what I asked Jim to read was only the first 14 verses. And that's on purpose. I didn't, that's not a mistake. Um, most of the preaching is going to be on those first 14 verses. Because what happens in the rest of the chapter is really setting up the following two chapters. So um, we'll cover it, but I'll try to summarize it and just touch on it lightly because it'll really start unpacking next week. Uh, so really the, the big section is, is verses 1 through 14. And in that, what we see is God is working in Jacob to order his loves. Um, that's a, a phrase that, that ho I hope to unpack is ordered loves. And so that's that first section. The second part is where God begins to work uh, through Joseph and his brothers to diagnose their jealousy. So first we're going to order love and then we're going to spend some time diagnosing jealousy. All right. So here's what's going on is um, we've got to set the stage. To begin with, Joseph is now the ruler in Egypt. There's a famine going on and he's doling out food. Joseph, uh, his brothers came to visit him. Simeon is still there. Simeon's in Egypt in prison. The other nine brothers have returned. And Joseph said, don't come back if you don't have Benjamin because I think you're spies. So they don't realize it's, it's Joseph. When you look through this section, what they refer to him is the man. So you got to go please the man or you're not getting the food. And to please the man, you got to bring Benjamin to prove that you're not liars. That, that's the, 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 the way the stage is set. So the brothers are now back in, um, in the promised land, and it says the famine was severe in the land. So what's going on is, remember, the, the famine was seven years. And I said last week that the, it wasn't like the first moment of famine the brothers headed down there. They still had food. They were doing okay for probably about a, a season or two. And so now they've gone down to Egypt. They got food. They've returned. And they're in, back in the promised land, and the food that they brought with them is now gone. And so it's time to go get more. So it's probably three, four, five years into this famine, but they don't know when it's going to end. They're not, they're not privy to the, the uh, Pharaoh's dreams and that kind of thing. So they know they got to get more food. It, even if it ends in three years, it's another season before they start having food to eat anyway. So they're probably about halfway through their, their dire situation. And Jacob looks to his sons and says, go buy us a little food. Um, he realizes we've only got enough to last for so long. It's coming to the end, so go back and get more. And that opens that whole dialogue we heard between um, the brothers and Jacob is, look, we can't go if we don't have Benjamin. You've already told us he's not going. And so Jacob's response is, why, have you, why did you treat me so? Why would you tell this man you had another brother? Why? Oh, poor me. It's all against me. Um, that's his attitude, is, is he is so hooked on Benjamin that he doesn't want to let him go. And the brothers say, look, we can't go. If we go down there, we're not going to see him. If Benjamin's not with us, it's a useless trip. So, Dad, you have to send Benjamin. And then Judah steps up and says, I will be surety for the boy. I will be the one that will be held responsible for him. If Benjamin doesn't come back, you require it of me. That, I think that gives you that hint. They're in really bad situation, that they're begging their father. So the brothers understand what's going on. They're, they've probably begun to lose some of their flocks because of the, the famine, and so they're begging him. And so that's the situation that we find it in, we find the family in. And so then finally it occurs to Israel, um, notice they call him Israel now. 
if you look at the names in here, it's Judah, them, and Israel. It's kind of mixed around. What's up with Israel? Why call him Israel? There's really no clear pattern. If you do a study of Genesis and, and when he's called Jacob and when he's called Israel, there's no clear discernible pattern. It's not like Moses is throwing keywords at us. Um, but I think if you stop and you read this from the perspective of who Moses wrote it to, which would be the Israelites, is when he calls Jacob Israel, he's reminding them, that's kind of you. This is kind of you guys here. So um, what he's painting, the picture he's painting here with this, this famine that's going on and Israel's response is, you guys have to remember who you are and what you're like. Um, they're, they're wanting to go back to Egypt and Israel doesn't want to go to Egypt. <laughs> he's, there's, he's playing this game with them, kind of setting them up for that. So when they hear Israel, it would kind of ring in their ears that, hey, maybe he's talking about us. Maybe that's who he's speaking of. So then there's this turning point in, um, in Israel. He, say, he says, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so. Israel realizes he's been boxed into a corner. He's stuck. If I don't let him go, we're all going to die of starvation. If I do let him go, I could lose him on the way. It must be so. So he's finally broken and he says, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, a little myrrh, a little gum, pistachio and almonds. And then take double the money. Remember last week what happened is they got back, they opened up their bags and all their money was still back in the bags. They're full of grain and all their money's back. So they're terrified. They're just afraid that they're going to show up and this guy's going to say, you ripped me off. And so this is, this is what Israel's idea is, is, is here, take, a little, take double the money and carry back the money that you had. So the money that we set aside originally, take that with you and then take double of that. So they've got three times the cash they're going down there with. Plus these nice fruits of the land, um, gum and balm and honey and myrrh and pistachios and that kind of stuff. It's, it's just a little, like a little welcoming basket. I picture it wrapped in cellophane, but it probably wasn't because they didn't have cellophane. But, you know, hi, we have a present for you. Um, so that's the plan is we'll go back and, and to prove that we're honest, we'll give them their original money back and then double it uh, because we're, we're honest men. We're not trying to rip them off. Uh, so then he says, take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God grant mercy to you. So he's praying now. He, he prays this blessing on them. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So he prays to El Shaddai, God Most High, for mercy. And up until this point, who's he been fussing about? Benjamin. Now who's he said? Well, perhaps uh, Benjamin and your other brother will return. But if they don't, he's now actually concerned about Simeon, the fact that Simeon's in jail. We haven't seen him show any concern to the other brothers at all yet. So what you're seeing here is Jacob is a different man. He's a different type of person. We're seeing this, this pivot in his life. This is his changing point. This is where God has drawn him in to the point where he has got to deal with his disordered loves. And that's that, that, that's that phrase that I promised to unpack for you. Um, in St. Augustine's The City of God, he talks about um, what sin is. 
And what he says sin is, sin is disordered loves. And here's what he means by ordered. There, there should be an order to what we love. There's a structure to it. And, and if we love things out of order, then that results in sin. It's a distortion. And so Augustine says we should love God first and foremost, and then we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and as we love that, as we love God first, the creator, and then his creation, we keep things in balance. But when we elevate something out of order and we put it up there where it's going to be in competition with God, that's when we branch into sin. That's where sin falls. And it's interesting because in City of God, where he's doing that is in the book of Genesis. He's talking through Genesis and he's presenting these two, God, these two cities that are developing, the city of man and the city of God. And he says, the city of man, you see these loves become disordered. But the city of God is this other group of people that are, that are there as well, and they're loving God first and foremost. So Jacob's problem right now is that he has disordered loves. They're out of order. They're, they're upside down. Don't forget what, what he's gone through. So we're meant to love. We're built to love. That's not an uncommon thing. That's not some freaky thing that you love. You're supposed to. And, and the problem is when it gets wrong. So here's, here's Jacob's loves. This is how this worked. Jacob loved Rachel. Remember that from Genesis 29? It's explicit in verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. He tolerated Leah. So he, he was in love with this woman. This was what captivated his heart and what drew him to him. Her, rather. Joseph was Rachel's firstborn. And Joseph... Or Jacob loved Joseph. We saw that at the beginning of this section where it was kind of, you know, he had the T-shirt that said daddy's favorite, and that was kind of a problem. So he loves Rachel, and now Rachel has Joseph, so he loves Joseph. That's a firstborn from what he really desires as a family. The secondborn, though, was Benjamin. And so the woman that, that Jacob loves, Rachel goes into labor, and she has Benjamin and then she dies. So now Jacob's love is transferred to these two sons because they represent, they remind him of their mother. So the, the woman that he has loved, he's cherished. Now what's left is these two sons. And remember when Benjamin was born, as Rachel is dying, she named the child. She called him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob said, no, he's son of my right hand. That is, son of power, son of my, my strength. He is the son that, that uh, will succeed. He will be blessed. That's what he means by the son of my right hand. So again, it's the, the favorite. So then our story, we catch up with our story here. As far as Jacob knows, Joseph's dead. He was given a, a blood-soaked, multicolored or long-sleeved robe that used to belong to Joseph, and, and he hasn't seen him in over 20 years. So his love now had been on his sons because he loved his, their mother. Now it all focuses on Benjamin. Benjamin's his last connection with the thing he truly loves in the world. And the threat is, if I send Benjamin with you guys, he may not come back, and then where will I be? So do you see what I mean about disordered loves? Is he has elevated his son Benjamin to a place that Benjamin cannot exist. Benjamin is never going to last forever. There will be a day when Benjamin dies. 
There's no guarantee that he's going to continue forever. So for Jacob to put all the weight of meaning, all the weight of the burden of his care and his love on Benjamin, it's actually unfair to Benjamin too. Can you imagine what it it must be like to live in that kind of a sitting? Jacob probably talks about Rachel all the time. Yeah, she gave birth to you and then she died. And, And he's not meaning it mean, but I just can't imagine the weight on poor Benjamin at this point. That's because Benjamin was not designed to carry that weight. That disordered love, that upside down, that flipped around love has got to be restructured. And that's what God is working on here. Um, God doesn't ignore these kinds of things. In his people, he will continue to work on us and reorder, restructure our loves. So the the point is that this isn't Benjamin's fault. Um, not that we, any of us think it is, but this isn't Benjamin's fault. And Augustine says um, that uh, in his, his book, uh, City of God, he says, if, uh, the way a miser loves gold, it's not a fault in the gold. It's a fault in the man. So when our, our loves are disordered, if disordered love is placed on us, we may use it, we may manipulate it, but it's ultimately it's not our fault. It's the person who loves is what his point was. And so that's the problem here with... Um, with poor Jacob, is his, his love is disordered. And is it fair to say that? Where do we get this? Scripturally, where would we get this idea that there, there should be structure and order to love? Well, we get it from Jesus. He's the one who taught us that. In Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to him and says, I have a question for you. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So right there, he's set an order. The first thing, the greatest thing you can do is love God. The second, after that, it's not not detached from it, but it's underneath it, is love yourself and love others. Love the created things. So we're not called to walk through this world and hate everything we see because we love God. But we are called to walk through this world and love God first and foremost as the primary and then things as the, uh, in, in the proper order, the way that they're supposed to be. So how do we get in this mess? How do we wind up with this disordered loves where we're loving anything in sight? Well, I think that's the key word is sight. Can you see God? We can't see him. His, one of his, his divine attributes is invisibility. But we are called to see what we don't, or we are called to love what we don't see. That's hard for us to do. We love what's in front of us. We love what we see, what we can touch, what we can interact with. And, and that's exactly what happened at the fall, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They could see the tree. The tree was beautiful. It was appealing. And so they ate. And so that's the same thing that we're doing is we're looking around. We want to love. We're geared to love. We're made to love. And what we do is we walk around and we look at things, and we love things that we shouldn't necessarily love in that degree. Not that we shouldn't love them, but we, we may elevate them. We may uh, get the order wrong. So that's nice. How do we get God back at the top of that? How do we order that again? How do we get our loves restructured the way that they're supposed to be? 
Well, one of the things is, I think it's a, it's a great quote by Jim Elliott, the, the um, missionary to the Aka Indians. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It, it's important in this structured, in this ordered love thing is to remember, give what you cannot keep in order to gain what you can't lose. The problem with Benjamin, fixing Jacob fixing on Benjamin and holding him up so high is that Benjamin will not be eternal. He won't always be Benjamin, not to Jacob. He can't fix his love on him and be satisfied with Benjamin for eternity. The, the problem with loving um, respect, suppose, maybe that's, that's something that you really treasure, is ultimately respect will let you down. It will consume you. You will wind up giving everything you have to gain respect and it will only trickle back to you. You can't, you can't keep that, so give that up. Give up that thing that's not going to last for eternity to gain what you cannot lose. And, and that's God. God says, I will be with you forever. I will always be with you. So the first thing to remember is the stuff that you can see is transitory. It's not going to last forever. It's going to fade. It's going to go away. But the stuff you can't see... God will always be there, and he's big enough to bear the weight of your love for eternity. We get to spend an eternity understanding him more and more and more and never getting to the end of who he is and being delighted day by day and thrilled that we learned this new thing about him. He is the only thing that can carry that kind of a burden, that can cause us to be in love for eternity, to not get sick of looking at the thing because he's so huge, he's so much bigger. So then how do we get our, our, our hearts in order now? How do, how do we line things up? Um, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, I think he summed it up really nice. He says, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influences of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one. Makes sense. The living God who revealed himself at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. And I think that's the key is he, he, he's big enough for you to bear the burden of your care. And if you fail, he doesn't consume you. He forgives. If your big thing is respect, what happens when you do something goofy? Respect abandons you. And who hasn't done something goofy? We all have those things that keep popping up in our memory going, gosh, I wish I hadn't said that. Those, those are those kind of things that keep coming back. Those are the things that cause respect or honor or, or whatever it is to flee from you. But God says, when you do those things, I don't flee. So that's Keller's point is that we hold on to those things. So first of all, to, to get our, our loves structured, what we have to do is we look at Joseph and we say, you know what? God was at work in Jacob. God hadn't abandoned Jacob. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. So the first promise is that God is at work in you. 
So how can I restructure my loves? How can I get my, my, my desires in order? First, God is at work in you. It's not up to you alone. It's not just clench my fist, stomp my feet, love the right thing. There we go. Instead, God is saying, I am at work in you and I will bring it to completion. I will finish what I've begun in you. And the next thing is you have to love God, right? That's, that's where we're aiming. Well, know him more. Experience him more. Seek him out. He has given you things. So to know God more and to not know him less would be pray to him. Pray and watch and see what he does. Ask him for marvelous things. Pray that he would do wonderful things and watch what he does. Trust him. Count on his promises. That's exactly what happens here with Jacob, is Jacob is counting on God's promise. This is John Calvin's commentary on this. I thought he said it really well. He says, it's helpful, helpful for us to know the conflicts of the Holy Fathers so that fighting with the same weapons as they use successfully, we may likewise stand invincible, even though God should withhold present help. So why are we looking at Jacob for this? Because God was at work in Jacob. God showed through Jacob, this is what he's going to do for you. And what was Jacob holding on to? He was holding on to this thin promise that God had made to him. He said, I will bless you and I will be with you. And so Jacob is holding on to that promise and saying, God, I'm counting on that because that's all I've got. So remember what God has done for you. That's what prayer can do for you. When you pray and you ask him, Lord, do these things, he's inviting you to come and watch him do it. He wants you to be involved in it. Read his word. This is history of God's faithfulness over and over and over again. If you want to know him, read his word. Spend some time in his word. It's February, halfway through February. You know what? You can start a Bible reading program, a read through the Bible in a year, and you don't have to do it on the exact date it says. You could start now and mark off January, and it would be okay. I won't tell on you. I promise. But the point of reading and praying is, Lord, let me see you. Let me know you. Show me who you are. So that's what I do when I sit down every morning when I do my Bible study is I pray, Lord, Get the Facebook and the Twitter and the other distractions out of my head and let me just focus and see you here. Let me see what you're doing. What are you up to? Help me to see more clearly. Now, I know numbers is a lot of genealogies. I understand that. And it can be kind of hard sometimes to say, okay, God, show me who you are in this. But it's inspired and it's there for some purpose. And so you don't always get an aha moment. But you can call on the Lord and, and, and seek him in knowing that. The other thing I want you all, you can check this one off. If you're making a checklist, you've, you're already doing it. Worship him. Worship him. When we come together and we sing these songs together, we are announcing these great things about God, these great truths about God, about who he is. And you're hearing other people say it. So you know it's not just in your head. It's other people. Somebody wrote these songs. Ramey has picked these songs, and then we all sing them together, and we all delight in them together. That's how you know him, and that's what stirs in us a love that will begin to bump up above other things. Is we don't sing praises to our cars. Some of us might, but don't. We sing praises to our God, and you're not going to do it here, so I guess that's okay. We don't sing praises to our bank accounts. 
Instead, we gather together and we rehearse God's greatness together. And that's what is designed to stir us to greater things. That, that's how Paul explained it. He said, sing, sing to each other psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to encourage each other, to build each other up. The problem is, if we never exercise our feelings about him, you, you could say, I really love this person. If you never exercise your feelings about that person, that can either begin to fade or twist. You may not be loving that person. You may be loving a distorted version of that person. That's why we have to gather together and worship together is so that we are announcing God's truth to each other, so that we are experiencing and hearing God's truth from each other, and we're ensuring that we're worshiping the true and the living God because that's the only way to get out of this mess. And then the other thing is listen to each other's experience of him. That's why we have so many small groups, is so that we can get together and enjoy each other's friendship and fellowship, have a lot of fun, but also recite stories. What has God done in your, your life this week? That's why our, our small groups start with prayer, is we get to pray and we say, oh, this is something going on in my life. And then you remember, oh, how did that turn out? Wow, God really acted in that. We do that together in small groups as we share with each other, as we share before the service or after the service. Brag about God. Tell each other, this is what God has done for me this week. Isn't that amazing? This is what I'm hoping God will do. And so when we hear this, when we put all this together, what we hear and we remember is God is active and living. He's real. He's a person who cares. He's involved in us. He's not a cosmic force. He's a person. And so as we see him, as we experience him, as we use the things that he's given us, then we can begin to order our loves correctly. And the great thing is how, um, how Jacob ends this. He says, and as for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. What he's finally got to in that little statement is, I am hoping for, I am longing for the return of my sons. But if, he don't, if they don't come back, then I'm bereaved. And if I'm bereaved, then I'm bereaved. In other words, what he's saying is, in the end, in the final part of this, I'm trusting the Lord. I'm turning Benjamin over to the hands of a loving God, a God who cares. And I don't have to assume I'm going to lose what I love. What I've done is I've gained something even better because I'm loving and I'm trusting the Lord. So that's, in the end, what we see is, is Jacob's loves begin to fall back into order. In the end, God has moved him through hardship, through starvation, through difficulty to the point where Jacob says, I have nothing to do but trust the Lord. I, there's nothing left. And it can sound scary, but that's that illusion of security in our lives. We think we've got it all nailed down. We've got it all figured out. Um, we're going to live to be, you know, 900 years old and fall asleep and, and wake up in heaven. And the reality is this is an illusion. This idea of safety is just an illusion. The safety doesn't come from your bank account, from the alarm on your house, from the bars on your window, from the gun in your, in your cupboard. The safety comes from I am God's. And God has promised to me great and wonderful things. One of them we just heard. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I am secure. I am safe because I'm in God's hands. Because I've trusted him. I'm, his, I'm one of his. So this is how you fight and win. 
This is how you wrestle with those disordered loves because what happens is you get them nice and ordered and you get it all sorted out and then one you forgot about comes bubbling up to the top while you're not looking. And you have to fight that fight all over again. And so you go back at it. it it's, it's, a, it's a wrestling match. But the great news is you're guaranteed to win. God has promised that you will win. Isn't that great? You're engaged in a fight you can't lose. So what do you hold back when you go for it? Spend it all. And if you're bereaved, you're bereaved. But you ultimately don't lose. So this is where Jacob is now. This is the reordering of Jacob. Let's look at the second part of the, the chapter. And again, what I want to do in this is just kind of summarize it quickly and, um, and set us up for next week. So in verse 15, so the men took this present and they took double the money and they took Benjamin and they arose and they went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, at this point, the, what's called the narrative pace really slows down. The narrative pace is how much time are, uh, is spent. So if I write and it takes you three minutes to read, how much time in real time did that take? And a one-to-one -one would be tedious, but it would be really detailed. And this is slowing down towards that point. Moses is getting very detailed in, in this part of the story. And that's why what comes next actually takes two and a half chapters. But um, this is what sets it up. So they go down and they go into the, to, uh, to, to Joseph's house and they meet the steward of the house. So they're in Joseph's house, still not knowing who he is. They meet the steward and they begin to feel guilty because, well, we didn't steal. We promised we didn't steal. Um, so the man's, uh, they, they're afraid and they said, look, we, we brought the money that, that was somehow back in our pack and, and we don't know how that happened and we're really sorry about that. And what's really cool is the, um, the steward says, God has given you this money. God has given you that. I received your money. So it's a little bit of a fib because he actually put the money back. But what he tells them, what he's, he's portraying to them is God gave you that money. I have the stuff you brought. I received that, but God gave you that money. So it's kind of a fib, but it's kind of not because he did receive the money. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to put it back in their bags. But he attributes it to God. So it's God who has done this for them. He says, uh, oh, it's verse 23. He says, peace to you and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brings out Simeon. So now the family is back together. And so Joseph comes home. So he's had a hard day at work feeding you know, the world. And he comes home and he, he comes in and here's all of his brothers. And the, the, it gets really touching. You can see Joseph is not just being a hard guy. He's not just being really mean. Because he comes in and he asks, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, your servant is well. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. So he, he it's sad. Remember, the original ploy was, you're lying to me because you're spying out the land. So if you don't bring your youngest brother, I'm not going to believe you. But his heart's betraying him at this point because he doesn't go, is that your youngest brother? Oh, cool. You're not spies. All right. Get your food and go. Instead, his heart is warm. That's what, he's, what Moses says next. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. So 
you don't see Joseph being mean. What you see him is melting like a baby. He's seeing his younger brother. He hasn't seen him in 20-something years, and his compassion grew warm. So he is delighting in seeing this man. So he hurries out, and he weeps. And so I imagine him come back with slightly puffy eyes and his little, you know, Egyptian mascara thing kind of smeared because he's washed his face. But he's back and he's, he's going to put on a happy face. And so he tells them, it's time for food. Let's eat. And so he gives the announcement, serve the food. When they served him by himself, because he's a high muckety muck, so he gets served by himself. And they serve the Egyptians by themselves because Hebrews, ew, they don't like shepherds is really the big problem, and that's what the Hebrews were with shepherds, is they tolerate them because you got to have the, the um, milk and the, the wool and stuff, but really shepherds are yuck. You know, we don't want them around. So the, um, Joseph is by himself, the Egyptians are by themselves, and the Hebrews all sit together. But what's alarming is they're in birth order, and they notice that, and they look up and down the table, and they're like, what is going on? Now, you and I at this point are going, he just blew it, man. He just, he revealed the secret at this point. But he hasn't. It's like, did anybody see the movie Sixth Sense? When the little boy reveals that he sees dead people, he looks at Bruce Willis and he says, I see dead people all the time. They don't know they're dead. They can't see each other. The producers of the movie went, you can't do that. You just gave the whole thing away. Everybody's going to get it at this point. Anybody get it at that point? Totally blew my mind. I didn't know Bruce Willis was dead. Oh, spoiler alert. The movie's been out for a while. You should know this by now. It's a similar thing here is we read this and we go, well, I know what's, gonna, I know what's going on. I know this is Joseph. These guys don't. And so when they look up and down the table and they see themselves in birth order, I think what Joseph is kind of setting up is remember the next chapter, he hides his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And when they find out, he says, didn't you know that a man such as I can practice divination? I think he may be setting that up here. Is they're looking up and down the road going, this dude's got power. How does he know our birth order? This is incredible. Is, is he's beginning to work in them. He's, he's very careful and he's very methodical. And so they, they, they set the food out and portions are taken from Joseph's table. This was high honor. This was just the most amazing thing to have the most important man in the room share some of his food with you. So the, the servants come and they take some from his table and they serve the brothers. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. So I don't know how Benjamin was going to eat five times as much as the other brothers. Maybe that wasn't the point. But here's what's going on is Joseph is setting these guys up to be jealous of Benjamin. He's putting his younger brother at risk, but it's a test. He's testing because so far, remember, he told them, go back and don't come and see me again unless you've got Benjamin. They passed that test. They came with Benjamin. And so he says, okay, I, I can trust him this far. Let's see if I can trust him this far. So let me favor Benjamin and then see what happens. And now that sets us up for next chapter because what happens is he puts Benjamin at, at peril. He, he makes it so the brothers could just turn Benjamin over and go, hey, you know, throw that guy under the truck. Yeah, he stole it. We're out of here. But he's going to be turned over to Joseph if that's what happened. And so he knows Benjamin's safe, but he wants to see where the brothers are. And then the last sentence, the last little portion, and they drank and were merry with him. 
they, they come together and they sit down and they eat. And it's basically what it means is they got drunk together. They were drinking wine and they were celebrating and they were merry. They had a, a meal with their brother. Now, one of the things I skipped, because I think it fits better here, it kind of adds a little more punch to it, is um, when they come in and when Joseph walks in, they all bow down to him. All the brothers are now together and they bow down to Joseph. What was the promise? What was the promise that Joseph was given, the dream that he had? My sheaf will stand up and your sheaves will bow down. So here they are standing before Joseph. They bow before him. And now he provides food for them from his table. He is feeding his brothers. And it's not just, well, here's a little bit of food. They're partying. They are, they are celebrating. They're making merry. They're laughing. They're carrying on together. So this beautiful reunion is happening, but Joseph is not finished with them yet. He still wants to see if jealousy is, is laid up in their hearts. And so that's why he set Benjamin up. And we'll continue to set him up next week. as next. But the point is, he wants to see that his brothers are ready. So they, he's already got this promise fulfilled. They've already bowed down to me, like God told me they would. And, and so, like I said last week, is he's testing them. He wants to make sure he's going to lead them well. So he's got to figure out exactly how to get to this, it, this jealousy issue, because it was the issue they had with him. Is it still there, or have they reconciled? And that's where we get to next week. That's where we get where he tests his brothers. So, disordered loves and jealousy, are those two different things? They're not really, are they? Why were they jealous of Joseph? Because they loved their position. They loved their rank in the family. And for Joseph to come and say, I'm going to rule over you. You're all going to bow down to me. Instead of loving the Lord and saying, really, God gave you that, that message in a dream? That's amazing. Instead of doing that, they went, no, we're going to kill you. Oh, well, that won't be any profit. So we'll just sell you off and then it'll be, well, at least we make some money out of the deal. You see how they, they roll together. It's a, it's a common problem in the human heart is that love gets out of place. And we love ourselves or we love our position or we love our authority or we love our money or love our position or whatever it is more than we love the Lord. So when I was praying for the shooting in Florida, it's a similar thing. We don't understand people the way we should because we don't love the Lord the way we should. If we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, then we love what he loves. And he loves people. He created them in his image. Our loves become disordered and all sorts of horrible things tumble out of it. So work on your heart, brothers and sisters. Feed it, cultivate it, hammer on it, chase it, and work on getting those loves ordered. And know you have the tremendous promise that God is at work in you already. A couple weeks ago, we said the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in your heart. You have got the cards stacked in your favor. Pursue them, and you're guaranteed to win. It'll be a rocky road. It's not always pretty. Benjamin could have died. It's not the promise. The promise is, in the end, I will bring all things together. I began a good work in you. I will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Lord, um, 
You caused us, you made us, you built us to be lovers. Lord, you've built into us desires, even pictured in our daily need for food and water. We desire those things, and without them, we're uncomfortable. Lord, I pray that we would recognize our need to love, our need to be filled, our need to be satisfied. And Lord, would you lead us in the true ways that will satisfy us eternally. Lord, I pray that we would all use this world the way it is intended. All of creation is there to show your glory. And and Lord, as we delight in the things you have given us, and Lord, we are a blessed people. As we delight in those things, I pray that they would not become ultimate, but Lord, that they would be pointers, bright arrows shining, pointing us at you, saying, we have a good God who loves us. Lord, make us into a people who love the way you do, selflessly, generously, abundantly. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name because he died to redeem us from our broken loves. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.